and Gambo. Afternoons, 2 till 6 on the Arizona Sports App. Welcome back. It's the Burns and Gambo Show here on the flagship home of the Arizona Cardinals, 98.7 FM Arizona Sports Station. It's Seattle week, which means we've got a, a couple of go-to guys that we like to turn to in the Seattle area to talk about the Seattle Seahawks. And one of them, who we had on the show a couple times last year, from the athletic website, Michael Sean Dugar. We like to call him Mike. He joins us here on the Burns and Gambo Show to talk Seahawks football. Mike, how are you today? I'm doing good. How are you guys doing? Yeah, well, right. first, I'd like to, uh, you know, I'd like to apologize for Robbie Ray. We had him here. We probably should have expected that to happen. So we want to apologize to all the Seattle fans for, for Robbie Ray's uh, one at bat yesterday. Uh, yeah, that was that was brutal. I'm not like a. I, I understand baseball, but like I had to text a bunch of people who know more than me. Like, hey, is this a bad decision Scott's doing? Is this good? Like, is this normal to put a starter in? You know, so I got the context later. And then when, you know, the result happened, I was, uh, uh, Scott Service is lucky, man. He's lucky he's in a pretty media, uh, team-friendly media market because based on what I've learned about that decision and that result and that situation, if he was the manager of the White Sox, the Cubs, the Dodgers, the he, his head would be on a stake uh, this morning, uh, based on just what I've learned about doing that, just making that decision in that in that instance. Yeah, that was that was really good. Yeah, a lot of Diamondback fans won a lot of money with those quick bets because will he give up a single, double, triple, a home run, and it just went right to the home run, and so they probably made a lot of money. All right, let's let's talk Seattle. Let's 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 first start with Russell Wilson. Are you shocked, surprised that Pete Carroll knows something? Uh, getting out of Russell Wilson at the right time, he does not look anywhere near the type of player we've seen for all those years with the Seahawks now in Denver. Yeah, the, the perhaps the most surprising thing about Russell's performance in Denver so far is the lack of accuracy. You know, because of all the traits uh, that quarterbacks have to have, you know, when you're accurate, it just makes your job so much easier because you think about being accurate, what that means. You, you have arm talent usually. You know, you throw with anticipation usually, you know, like especially when you're accurate on the deep ball, you have good touch. Now, Russell's probably one of the most accurate quarterbacks in the league entry this season. He just cannot hit the broadside of a barn on some pretty basic throws, um, as we saw on Thursday Night Football. It's really weird uh, in that regard. Accuracy also usually doesn't fade as you get older, too. Like, Tom's still accurate. Drew's arm, Drew Brees, his arm turned into a noodle, but he was still accurate. He just couldn't throw it very far um, anymore. And, you know, Rodgers is however old, and he's still accurate. So your accuracy when you get older is still usually there. Even Matt Ryan's still accurate. So that's really weird um, that Russ doesn't seem to have that part of his game anymore. I don't think Seattle could have anticipated that part because he was still very accurate here. Uh, But then the report coming out that he needs, like, an injection in his shoulder. It was like, oh, well, maybe that's why. Um, Because the only time I've seen him be super inaccurate over an extended period of time in Seattle was when his finger was broken. Um, so maybe maybe it's just an anomaly because he's got whatever shoulder issue. But if this continues, yeah, that's just that's mind boggling. QB accuracy is just to fall off a cliff like that. Yeah, Mike Dugar from the Athletic, the beat writer who covers the Seahawks, our guest here on the Burns and Gambo Show. There are no victory laps when you're off to the start. The Seahawks are off to, or the start the Cardinals are off to. But is there somewhat of a victory lap being taken about Geno Smith and the start he's off to, or or when we talk about surprises, are, are they even surprised at the high high level at which he's played so far this year? Yeah, I think like internally, there's a little bit of I told you, probably a lot of bit of uh, I told you so um, with with Gino. You know, like I was, um, 
I was showing some of the guys in the locker room the replays of some of Geno's touchdown throws to the Saints because uh, I don't know if people know this. The players don't get a lot of time to watch the replays of the big plays. I see them on the jumbotron, uh, if 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 that you know, depending on where they are on the field, and then they, when they're on the road, for sure, they just kind of get dressed and go to the bus. Um, so like some of those guys were seeing the replays, like Ty Lockett's first couple touchdowns uh, for the first time, and it was just like wow, like they were a impressed and like yeah, man, we. We knew he could do this, um, which you know, to the to what extent, I'm not really sure. If they knew that Gino would be through five weeks one of the best quarterbacks in football, they probably just knew that he didn't stink to the level that everyone else thought he stinky, <laughs> and that's probably fair um, because even last year he didn't stink. He was still very accurate. He just wasn't very impactful. He wasn't making a lot of the big time throws that he's making right now. He was just making throws, just kind of run of the mill, backup, don't make too many game breaking mistakes type of thing. So, yeah, I'm sure, um, specifically with Pete Carroll, there's a lot of, I've been trying to tell you guys this dude can throw and he wasn't listening to me. Uh, but even then, the counter to that for Pete is like, dude, you didn't even open up the offense till week three. Right, right. So even though, despite that, you didn't probably believe in the dude to this extent, you know, against the Niners and the, and the Broncos. Yeah, it's, it's, it's weird, but in general, I, I imagine everyone in Seattle in that building, I should say, not outside the building, is like, yeah, we've been trying to tell you, Geno Smith's good. Do you think that they would have signed Garoppolo had the 49ers let him go? Uh, that's tough because Jimmy was coming off that bad shoulder and no one had seen him throw. Um, I'm sure they would have wanted to work him out, but if you're going to invest in a dude being a quarterback, you, and you want to see him throw. You know, same thing with the Baker Mayfield coming off the, the shoulder surgery. You know, like when you have surgery on your throwing arm, which I think it was the case with Jimmy, I think Baker might have been his other shoulder. But either way, that's a big deal. You need both of your shoulders to be uh, effective throwing the football. So I'm not quite sure on that one. And just the idea of signing a guy, let's say this Niners would have cut him on like August 30th or whatever, signing a guy that's a start a week later or something, that's just ridiculous. You just can't expect that. Um, he could make a veteran quarterback could maybe pick up your base defense, or excuse me, your base offense, your first down, second down stuff, but expecting the dude to come in off the street, uh, essentially, and then run your third down stuff, your two-minute stuff, your red zone stuff, like he would probably be a train wreck um, unless he's just running the ball in all those situations. So I think it would be unrealistic for them to have gone after uh, Jimmy. Uh, maybe Baker was probably a little bit more realistic, but I could see why Pete and John were just like, you know what, we'll just take Drew Locke and Gino over those dudes. And yeah, they're right. Yeah. Gino's playing worlds better than all of those guys. Yeah. Mike Dugar, uh, Seahawks beat writer for The Athletic, our guest here on the Burns and Gambo show. Uh, an article you wrote yesterday that we actually referenced a lot during our show because there, were just, there was so much good stuff packed in there. It, it's one thing to look at the numbers and, and say the Seattle defense is just awful, and it is just absolutely awful. It, it's another thing to answer the question, why? So I'll, I'll ask you the question, why is Seattle's defense as bad as it is? Yeah, it starts up front, which is a little cliche, I know, but the more I study football and the more I look at particularly bad football uh, on defense, I see why coaches just start there because you really are screwed if things are bad at the line of scrimmage on either side of the ball. Um, If your offensive line stinks, I don't care if you've got Sean McVay and all of his buddies calling your offense, it will stink. I don't really care what you run. And the same thing is true mostly on defense. You look at Seattle's run defense, and it's not like their scheme is bad. They run 3-4 mostly, and then they, they run some nickel fronts with four down linemen and they swap a DB for a, a defensive tackle on passing downs. 
and they just get blown off the ball. You know, he, there's nothing good linebackers, even the best of linebackers, can do really um, when their D tackles are getting double teamed, and then the centers climb into them, and they have to shed a 300 pounder before trying to tackle Alvin Kamara. That's just tough. I don't care who you are, you're Bobby Wagner in his prime, Luke Keekley, Navarro Bowman, or whoever. That's just Ray Lewis. You just can't consistently do that and expect to have uh, a really good run defense. So it starts there. The D-line is just getting blown off the ball. Just pretty much, no matter what the run is, running power, running duo, off tackle, which is killing them uh, for the first uh, couple games because their edge defenders are really bad. It's just, just getting blown off the ball. And then when that's the case, well, now your DBs basically have to come up and tackle and that's been a struggle. Um, that was really a, this has been a struggle on pretty much all of the big runs uh, they've given up. Whereas the 50 yarder to Debo Samuel in week two, the 50 yard touchdown to Jamal Williams in week four, Taysom Hill 60 yarder last Sunday. It's just all of those plays. I'm pretty sure a DB missed a tackle, and then boom, the guy was gone. And that's a product of their D line getting blown off the ball. So uh, it, that is the the root of their issues. Like they're bad in the passing game too, but. Um, up front, they're just getting blown off the ball, and then once that happens, you can't defend anyone uh, in the running game. Uh, we understand the practice squad real well. The Cardinals signed two running backs to the practice squad yesterday because they beat up a running back. But I think we were all taken aback a little bit with the Bruce Irvin signing by Seattle. I mean, we remember him from 2012 through 15 with Seattle. And he was great. But since then, he went to Oakland, Atlanta, Carolina, back to Seattle, to Chicago. What did you think of uh, them putting him on the practice squad? A desperate measure or, or, or did they feel like he can come in and play? Uh, a little bit of both, probably a desperate measure, uh, in part because of some injuries. You know, they came in thinking that Alton Robinson, a uh, third-year guy out of Syracuse, was going to be healthy and part of their outside linebacker group. He's still on injured reserve, and I don't even think he's been designated to return. So you're losing a guy there. Daryl Johnson has a foot sprain. Uh, he had been he started, I think, against the Lions and didn't make it through the game. Uh, so you just lost another outside linebacker there. And so they just, they just need bodies there. They called up a guy from the practice squad to play against the Saints, Christian Jones, but that, that's not sustainable. So you got to find a body. Um, and so, and like I mentioned, those off tackle runs that be killing them um, because their edge guys are just getting blown up, uh, whether by tackles or tight ends or pulling guards or whatever. So um, they have to find an issue there. And Bruce isn't the same guy from 2015 and 2012 run that you mentioned there. But I mean, shoot, he can still set an edge. You know, at the end of the day, that's just about leverage, technique, and playing strong. And that's one of those. I mean, Bruce is a dad. He's probably got dad strength. You know, he can set an edge uh, against a tackle. It was interesting. I was trying to show people on Twitter that Seattle's kind of been doing this 3-4 thing for a while, and I wanted to show that Bruce has been in it. Literally the first play of the last game he played in against the Patriots in week two of 2020, the the uh, Patriots run like an off-tackle run. Bruce. Uh, squares up the, I think they have a six lineman in, squares him up, kind of two gaps it. The running back comes in the hole, Bruce sheds his block, tackles due for like gain of only like two or three. It's like, boom. Now, granted, that's two years ago, but that that play, literally the first play of the last game he played, shows why they want Bruce back because their edge guys are not doing that. They're getting just blown off the ball, and then the linebackers have to flow, and then it's a mess, and they get up 200 yards. So. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure how effective Bruce could be, but I can see the role they they want him to play in right now. Mike, we always appreciate the time. Thanks for carving out a few minutes for us. We look forward to talking to you in the future. Thank you. All right, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. That's Michael Schoenberg from The Athletic. The Seahawks beat writer joining us here on the Arizona Sports Line.